Hi, it's Lucy and welcome back to another episode of The Real Girls Club, my podcast where I interview women about their careers in the film industry. Today, I am joined by two very special guests, Camilla Bayer and Rachel Pronger. Camilla is a programmer and curator based in Edinburgh. Rachel is a curator, writer and producer based in Berlin. Together, they joined forces to create Invisible Women, an archive activist film collective which champions the work of female filmmakers from the history of cinema through screenings, events and editorial. Since their first event in 2017, they have screened film programmes sourced from collections around the world at cinemas, festivals and galleries across the UK. They have presented events and screenings with partners including BFI, amongst many others. In 2021, they were invited to be part of Berlin Old Talents. Alongside their screenings, they research and write extensively about women in film history and send out a monthly newsletter. In today's episode, we talk all about their career beginnings as master's students in Edinburgh, what it was like putting on their very first events, how you can get involved with Invisible Women, and so much more. So it's really great to be with you both here today, Rachel and Camilla. Rachel, you're in Berlin and Camilla is in Edinburgh. I want to really go into how it all began for both of you and what your backgrounds are. How did this collaboration for Invisible Women come together? So so I'm Camilla, just for everyone to be able to put a voice to mm-hmm. name. Um, <laughs> and I'm originally from Berlin, which is funny, Rachel and I kind of swap places now. Um, and I came to Scotland in 2012 to study film studies and journalism, the University of Stirling. And I did that for four years. And while I was there, even though I went to study journalism during my four year course, I found out that I was more interested in, in global cinema, in festivization of film and um, everything that goes around there and when I graduated from there I also decided that I wasn't really done with Scotland that I loved it here and obviously being very close to Edinburgh which is festival city I found out actually a a tutor told me about a course at the University of Edinburgh called film exhibition and curation which was Mm -hmm. basically perfect for me because it married very beautifully these two passions of working with film but also all the elements that go around curating film contextualizing film. So I moved to Edinburgh and did that master's and that's where I met Rachel. And then maybe once Rachel went through her kind of (laughs) journey, then maybe you can tie up exactly then or kind of segue into how this started. And while I was uh, doing the master's, I was working for an art magazine here in Edinburgh. So I started making lots of connections with different art galleries and different other cultural institutions, which would then later come into play with Invisible Women. But also once I graduated from the master's program, I actually moved away from working in film as my primary job, but I started working as a, as a gallery manager here in Edinburgh. And then eventually I moved to Mexico City for two years where I, I managed a contemporary art gallery as well. And then because of Brexit, cut our time in Mexico kind of short and we moved back to the UK to make sure, or back to Scotland to make sure that as a European, I would be able to still live and work here. And then once I got back, I started working as a film programmer for a company called Indie Cinema Group. And um, basically, I look after several independent cinemas in Scotland and in mm-hmm. England, and I do their day-to-day programming with with these cinemas. Um, that's really interesting. That's, so that's that's basically where where I'm at. So what about you, Rachel? Yeah, so I've had another a similarly winding path <laughs> around as Camilla. Um, so I originally studied English and history at York University, 
And when I finished that, I had no idea what I wanted to do, like a lot of people, but I knew that I liked arts and cultural stuff and theatre and film. So I moved to London and worked on the box office at the Royal Court in London, which is a theatre, and then worked my way up kind of sideways into the marketing team there. And through that, I kind of realised that what I was most interested in was actually film. So I managed to move sideways into festival work, festival marketing and comms. So I worked at the festivals at the BFI, so like the London Film Festival and BFI Mm -hmm. Flair for a couple of years in their marketing team, which was like incredible experience because that's such a massive festival and kind of pretty top end stuff. So that was really exciting. And then I worked in cinema marketing for a while, but kind of again, realized the bit that I was most interested in was actually the programming and the curation. I think like a lot of people, like until you get into the industry, unless you know people, you don't know what the jobs are. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to like look around to find out what you can actually be paid to do in mm-hmm. film so I was really excited by the idea of programming and curation but I couldn't work out how to get there and how I would make that move so that's when I went to Edinburgh and did the masters that me and Camilla did together so the film exhibition and curation masters at Edinburgh University um, which is where we met and where we founded Invisible Women and we'll talk about that in a second and then after Edinburgh I kind of worked in various sort of programming roles and I did a bit of festival production as well, but for an amazing film festival in the Scottish borders called Alchemy, which I would really recommend to people. It's an artist moving image festival. I worked with them as a producer and as a programmer later, and I'm a trustee for them now. And they do amazing, like grassroots, incredible stuff with artist moving image in a really rural setting. So mm-hmm. I think they're amazing. And then after that, I did two years working in Newcastle, in the north of England for a cinema as an in-house programmer so I got kind of really solid kind of cinema programming experience doing that as an art house cinema called Tyneside Cinema so that was like incredible experience of like every aspect of independent film programming so running events picking the films going to festivals selecting titles that kind of thing and then the pandemic came and I had already decided that I wanted to move to Berlin again because of Brexit I did the swap that like Camilla came to the UK and I went to Berlin because yeah. I realized that I wouldn't be able to move later on otherwise so to do that I quit my job and now I'm a freelance programmer writer curator wearer of many hats so I do a lot of writing about film for kind of places like Sight and Sound like lots of online publications kind of bits and pieces of film criticism and feature writing and I also work as an independent curator for film festivals so I work for um, Aesthetica Film Festival for instance I did a bit of work for Sheffield mm-hmm. Docfest as well and I also do Invisible Women alongside that so that is kind of a strand of of my freelancing that I kind of fit into everything and that Camilla fits around her job in a very impressive way mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe Camilla do you want to talk a little bit about how we founded Invisible Women? Yeah, it's a really nice story, really. So this course, and that's a bit of plugging for the university here, because it's an amazing course that is really hands-on. As part of the course, we were able to work really with brick-and-mortar festivals. As a course, we did a program for the Glasgow Film Festival that year. We did some curation for the Edinburgh International Film Festival. And through this kind of hands-on experience that we got there, the course offers you the opportunity to write a standard thesis. So you you write your 25,000 words or whatever it is mm-hmm. and hand that in, or they give you the opportunity to do an applied project. So you could actually stage an event or any, any kind of other real life programming. And um, Rachel and I had talked about that that would be like a really interesting thing to do. And they also give you the opportunity to work together. So we were once in Rachel's flat back then having lots of wine and talking about what we could do and what the options are and we're really interested in um, kind of feminist films but also the archive we worked a lot with 
kind of finding out what's in the archive through the course, but that's when we decided we wanted to do something together about female filmmakers and how you can kind of extract them from the archives. And that was basically our idea. And that then turned into what is now Invisible Women. So it mm. all goes down to that bottle of wine, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, so we then started to hone this idea and also checking what the options would be. And it then became bigger and bigger. And basically what our master thesis was in the end was that we staged an event in a small gallery here in Edinburgh where we showed six short films made by seven women. There was one collaboration in there ranging from the 1930s to the 1970s of films that we had sourced from several screen heritage archives in Scotland, England, and Canada. I mean, what I can see is that, or from what I can hear, <laughs> is that it was really the perfect marrying of minds, sort of um, almost like fate <laughs> in a way. So you've decided to continue on then even beyond your studies and not just a project for university. So what made you want to continue with it? Was it really growing with so much like success? Were people responding really well to it? Yeah, very much so. So we did this first screening in this pop-up gallery um, in Edinburgh and we really thought that only our friends would come and our parents. <laughs> and actually it was full of strangers, which was quite alarming, but quite exciting. Um, like we just kind of promoted it on social media, like we didn't really expect many people to come. And it was so busy that we had to sit on the floor and it was such an obvious sign that there was interest in this idea and this was back in 2017 as well and I think it was it was before Me Too had happened and it was definitely a moment when I mean we were motivated by this kind of anger we felt about the lack of female representation at festivals particularly mm -hmm. directors I mm -hmm. think that that's gotten a lot better in the intervening years mm -hmm. but it's been interesting to be working on this project over five years and to see how that conversations evolved and to see how much more interested people are now in particularly historical films made by women. And also to, we get approached all the time now with people that want to work with us. And that's partly because we're a bit more visible because we have like social media channels now and things. But also it's partly, I think, a sign of the appetite growing amongst mm -hmm. the audiences for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So basically after that first screening, we were just like, well, it's cl we're clearly onto something. We've like mm -hmm. accidentally made a thing <laughs> yeah. that could work. So over the next couple of years, we kind of, kept going doing pop-up kind of DIY events like we presented research at the I Institute in Amsterdam which is an amazing it's their kind of like equivalent of the BFI um, in the Netherlands and that was exciting because mm -hmm. it was like with lots of people who were working in archives and, and academia and they were all saying wow like this is really cool you need to keep doing this we also started finding little opportunities to do stuff ourselves with screening so like Camilla was working at a gallery and they installed a screen and we were like can we come and do an event so we did an event as part of the Edinburgh Art Festival and we wrote to Flatpak Festival in Birmingham and convinced them to give us a slot so like these little steps mm -hmm. um, and then actually what happened is we were doing this it was going quite well we'd been asked to collaborate on like a tour that went around Scotland and the Highlands and Islands and that was really exciting and it felt like we had a bit of momentum and then the coronavirus happened <laughs> and everything physical stopped and I was put on furlough for my programming job so I had loads of time all of a sudden and like money coming in like I felt like I had a trust fund it was really exciting <laughs> obviously it was terrible like everything that's happening in the world but there was an, yeah. uh, an opportunity there as well because mm -hmm. it was like okay we have an indefinite amount of time now to build something that isn't just physical that could also be like a digital kind of thing so that's when we started working on the website, building that and started publishing the newsletter and 
publishing original writing as well about kind of our research that we've been doing about the women that we've been reading about. Um, and this really helped us grow and, and gave us much more kind of profile in the UK, but also internationally. And we also started doing hybrid, well, at first it was online only events. So like working with people to do online screenings and then hybrid events as things opened up. And kind of since things have started to open up properly post, post pandemic or mid pandemic or however you want to talk about it, it feels like we're in a new phase now. Just the scale of it has grown because we have mm-hmm. this like hybrid model. We've shown that we can do stuff that connects with audiences kind of around the world because mm-hmm. digital screenings let you do that. And we've also been able to reach much bigger partners and work with people um, mm-hmm. with more resources. So it's been very exciting now to be able to come back into real life screenings again mm-hmm. with this new audience that we built kind of online as part mm-hmm. of that. The name Invisible Women makes me sort of think of all those sort of women that have been forgotten and what I've noticed while doing my own project. Luckily, it's encouraged me and forced me to like open up my mind to looking and seeking out those women that I don't think were just, they weren't being like put in front of me before, whether that was like more current people or people from like the past, like they were just sort of almost like, it felt like they're a bit erased or just replaced by someone else as if they didn't do anything. Like I can think of um, one filmmaker that you'll obviously both know is Alice Guy Blushy or Blusher, I probably ruined her name. (laughs) Um, And she was like one of the first. And I was like, well, why is she never mentioned? Why is it when you type into Google, you know uh, best directors you just see as like a whole row of men like there's no women there it's like it's like where where were they in history and is that what your thoughts were and and what what do you think the benefits are of going back into the past rather than looking at what women are doing now yeah so really how what we sometimes call the the spark of discovery for us was um and how we actually then came from that bottle of wine to do what we (laughs) ended up doing (laughs) was that I found this article written by an academic at at the time at Stirling University, so where I studied, Sarah Neely, who wrote about Ruby and Marion Grierson, who were Mm -hmm. the sisters of John Grierson, who you may have heard about because he will be in that lineup of men. (laughs) I actually haven't. (laughs) Maybe I've Um, seen something about Well, let me tell you about his sisters. So (laughs) um, (laughs) he was coined the the father of documentary. He's... um, a documentary filmmaker just before and during the war and he was from Stirling well oh. from Cambus Baron which is just outside Stirling mm-hmm. and he's hailed like as this kind of pioneer of documentary filmmaking and I studied him I did a module in, docu- in, in documentary filmmaking and I studied him mm-hmm. and we have the John Grierson archive is at the University of Edinburgh uh, user, sorry University of Stirling I walked past that archive every single day when I was mm-hmm. at uni and I had never heard about his sisters, Ruby mm-hmm. and Marion, who were both filmmakers at the same time mm. with a substantial filmography. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so I came to Rachel with this paper being like, <laughs> why have we not heard about these women? How did yeah. I have a whole module on documentary filmmaking mm-hmm. at the University of Sterling? And I've never heard about these two women who were just from down the road, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we started. And then we we found this kind of red line when you when you start looking into where these women were working, who they were working with, what were the projects, who were they working for? Mm-hmm. And then you start digging and you start finding more and more. And that's kind of how this whole thing started. That's why it's invisible women, because mm-hmm. they were there. We just don't see them on paper yeah. until you go into the archives 
And then uh, what happened in this case is that we would find like little snippets of information that we would then kind of put together. And yeah, that's kind of how it, how it all started. That's I think where the, the name comes from. Sorry, Rachel, do you want to say something? Oh, just to jump in. And, yeah, um, no, I totally agree. That is, that I really vividly remember that conversation you had about Ruby and Marion. Like it's like a really, it's such an amazing story. And what I love about it is it like symbolizes so much about the history of women in film because they were right there at the heart of the action at the time. And that's the case it's always been. That like early days of Hollywood, as you say, like Alice Guy Bashir, like Lois Weber was the highest paid woman in Hollywood for a while. And that was mm-hmm. in the 1920s, I believe. Like, it's not that they haven't been there. It's just that the historiography hasn't been there and the mm-hmm. critical appreciation. And as film has become more and more of a kind of capitalist business with like male executives at the top those women have been pushed out because there's money there and that's what happened in Hollywood is it kind of moved from being the space of like a place where outcasts went really and where film was seen as a very like faddish kind of unimpressive art form as it became more respected and as it became more of a money maker women got forced out so I think it's like a really really interesting and important like political realization to know that it's not simply the case that female filmmaking began with like Catherine Bigelow you know what I mean Um, And it's really, and this is why I think it's important to come back to your question, to talk about the history of women in film Mm -hmm. today, because these things, these things go in cycles and Mm -hmm. like we're having this amazing moment right now with like Chloe Zhao and um, Jane Campion both having won Best Director and Mm -hmm. the Oscars and with, um, you know, Titan winning the Palme d'Or and this, Mm -hmm. I think it was, uh, was it happening that won at Venice? So like film festivals have had female directed films like Mm -hmm. winning. I mean, can still doing shit in general, to be honest, on female director stars. But like, you, it's obviously gone a lot better recently. Mm-hmm. But this moves in cycles, and this has happened before. Like, we've had moments before when it's felt like women are breaking through, and it's not lasted. So mm-hmm. we need to remember this and and kind of keep on. There were women all the time. There were like, you know, when Charlie Chaplin was big, there was Mabel Norman. You know, like people mm-hmm. don't talk about. So I think it's really important that we continue to understand that. We'll be right back after this short break. And why not take this time to go and follow the Real Girls Club on Instagram at Real Girls Club for future updates, including a post by Rachel and Camilla, where they share their top five female filmmaker discoveries that they've made through Invisible Women. So you've been doing it for five years now. What sort of changes have you noticed from the beginning and then now and like how, how you'd like to sort of take it forward? Yeah, I think so how it's changed from when we started. So as Rachel was saying earlier, at the beginning, what we did a lot was just send out pitches mm-hmm. and pitch to people kind of like, hey, we're here. This is what we do. Where can we slot in? How can we work together? Mm-hmm. And I think over the fi- last five years, we've kind of built a bit of a portfolio maybe even not kind of blowing our own trumpet, but become experts of sorts and and, and that what we do. So how it's changed is that we have people coming to us now who possibly are wanting to have a, a feminist archive kind of skewed program. So they ask us to come in or, and in all stages. So we have, we have people with, who just come to us and, and say, oh, we, we want to work with you. What kind of ideas do you have or people who come to us and say oh we have this panel we'd like you to sit on it or we'd like you to run it so it's changed in that in that sense and also something that we're very vocal about as well and we think it's really really important as a as a bigger conversation as well is the economics of how this all works so 
this always was and is and always will be a passion project, but it has become, I don't know how, how, how to phrase it properly, but it is now part of our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a very active part of Rachel's job as a freelancer. And for me, it is basically like a part-time job on top of my full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is kind of the biggest way in which, in, in which way it has changed. But it also allows us now to be more, I think, selective with the projects that we work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are more considerations now, you know, time-wise, also money-wise. And also we now have a fully-fledged brand. We mm-hmm. don't just go for anything just because it has women in mm-hmm. it. So, Rachel, is that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's really good that you brought up the economics because I feel like we don't, like, as an industry, talk about it enough. Of, like, basically we were running this out of our own pockets for several years and mm-hmm. then a bit, maybe just, like, covering our costs with the odd, like, little grant and stuff. And now we see it. It's never going to be, like, a big money maker, but it has to cover its costs and sometimes it needs to pay us as well. And... Mm-hmm. We definitely, at the moment, the money kind of just basically gets plowed back into the business that we do make in terms mm-hmm. of funding and partnerships and stuff. But like, to, in order for it to be sustainable and not to kill us and burn us out, mm-hmm. it does have to kind of make some money, which sounds like a bit of a dirty thing to say. I don't know. Oh, no, um, but I mean, I think we feel really, we think really politically about it. And like, mm-hmm. we're very careful in terms of who we work with, because I think there is a real risk that this, that this kind of feminist uh, like corporate feminism can really dilute kind of the politics of this mm-hmm. sort of work so we're very conscious in terms of who we work with and what we talk about and we definitely don't just do like generic women in film stuff like not often anyway because mm-hmm. actually like female filmmakers is not a genre and it's very reductive to like mm-hmm. do that so we're, I think what we're doing now more and more and what's changed is we're, we're being more kind of curated in what we do and more precise and the programs that we do now they're never really just like women in film programs they're like they have a theme or a time or a you know a place so like we did like recently Latin American feminist film collectives so it's like a very specific mm-hmm. kind of filmmaking and like at the same time we also did a program that was called Touched which was co-curated for tape which is all about um, sex and intimacy with female and non-binary filmmakers it's mm-hmm. like a very different kind of program but they're doing kind of similar things politically but they're also very very distinct so I think Mm -hmm. that's quite important and also just practically one thing that's changed that we should mention is we've now got a third invisible woman so we've invited Lauren Clark to join us who is a really amazing and she's a freelance kind of curator distributor general film person who was also running her own co-running her own feminist film collective called Femspectives that had to close just for like practicality reasons. Mm-hmm. So we had worked with her before and we've invited her to be an Invisible Woman. And that feels like an amazing relief to share the work and also to have yes. her expertise on board. And it also makes us feel more like a fully fledged collective. It feels like three is a collective, two yeah. is maybe two people just like yeah. really wanting to be a collective. The work um, is all more, more spread out in that way, you know, we've got extra, exactly. extra heads, exactly. extra minds to work on things. What you were saying earlier about, you know, picking specific topics and niches and things like that and there was a quote that I read by Agnes Varda and she said I don't I'm probably not going to quote it word for word correctly but something about you know I don't care about women just making films as long as as long as they've got something to say I thought it was interesting because you know it's not just about women making films it's like we do obviously want it to be about interesting things it's not just because oh a woman made it that must mean it's good you know it's not always the case yeah, it's not always the case. And also, it's not always the case that because a woman made it, it's feminist as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the politics of the films, the, the content of itself is something that we need to, like, be more nuanced about. 
I also don't necessarily think that, so one of the challenges that we come across a lot as people that work with archive is that politics has evolved. So like a lot of archive films have like images and ideas that we would say are like maybe pretty sexist, mm-hmm. loads of racist and colonial stuff. Like mm-hmm. tons of it. And that can be really difficult when you have like a female filmmaker who you think is great and you have a film that you want to show, but you're like, there's actually some stuff in here that is really quite offensive. But what I think is really important, and this is why I think curation is really important, is that we don't not show that stuff because Mm -hmm. it has problematic imagery in it Mm -hmm. um, or problematic ideas. But I think what you need to do is like present it and then have a discussion about it and what it means. And I think this is another another thing. Sorry, I just I know I'm going off on a massive tangent, but just go ahead. This is a problem I have with like the kind of girl bossification of feminism as well, is all the like kind of like heroines from history kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Is that actually women are people and they are complicated and they are good and bad. Just because a woman is making stuff doesn't mean that she's automatically the best person politically. And like mm-hmm. Lois Babe is a really good example. Like she made a crazy film in 1916 that is one of the first films to talk about abortion. And mm-hmm. I mean, it basically is the first silent film to feature abortion explicitly. Okay. But it's super anti-abortion and it's really pro-eugenics. <laughs> it's like wow. so politically problematic. It's fascinating. But I think I think it's really important that we watch that film. I mean, it's batshit and really interesting. <laughs> I'm mad that she was making it in 1916. And it really explicitly talks about birth control. Like wow. there's some stuff in it that's very, very kind of like interesting from a feminist history point of view. Mm-hmm. But it's also wildly eugenicist. So I think we need to accept that if we're going to screen this work, we also have to like view women as full people and mm-hmm. talk about them in a nuanced way which doesn't mean that I think we ever need to screen Lenny Reef style again I think we're done with that <laughs> um, but I think it's important to to screen the good and the bad and to talk about it all and have a nuanced approach yeah definitely that's a good point so for those that would be interested in getting involved in working with invisible women how could they do that if they would like to write for you or collaborate well, that's another, in any way. Yeah, that's another arm actually that came out of when we were all working remotely. Well, we were always working remotely because Rachel and I haven't lived in the same country for about four years, but um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of all more actively working remotely is that we actually managed to secure some money to bring other writers into the mix and mm-hmm. write for, for our blog, for a newsletter, so we did one call out, which went really well. We were absolutely inundated with really, really great pitches. And it was really kind of like having to kill your darlings by having to choose. We were only going to choose. We got the funding to choose two and ended up choosing three just because we were like, oh, we need to give these voices a platform. We don't have an open call out right now, mm-hmm. but as soon as we we're, we're working really hard to secure some more funding so we can pay the writers because as we said before, we're very vocal about not accepting any unpaid work, which mm-hmm. is why we haven't actually brought a third person in mm-hmm. until recently with Lauren now, where we feel like we're in a position where we we can, yeah, pay people for their work because we're fine working for free because it's our baby, but mm-hmm. also we don't, we just don't want to encourage that in the industry. Yeah. So that's one way. So we'll definitely be putting out a, a call out again as soon as we secure some funding. But we're always open to hear about collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked with very big organizations and with very, very small ones. And we're always really excited to hear what, what we can bring to the table for other organizations. So it's really just kind of like reaching out to us via either social media or the website. You, you mentioned um, working with some bigger organizations and I noticed that you got involved with Berlinelle Talents. What did that involve? 
Yeah, that was a talent development program that Bellinari runs, which was pretty crazy to get onto that, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we were very surprised. So that took place, like we were in last year's cohort. Um, and basically they have a strand of it, which is for people they call audience designers, but it basically covers like curators and programmers and people that run cinema spaces and that kind of thing. So that was like mentoring sessions, getting to meet loads of people from around the world who were also in the same cohort. So like literally mm-hmm. people from Mexico, people from Brazil, like someone from Indonesia, like it was incredible. It was all online though, which is so frustrating because I just moved to Berlin. I was like, I literally can like see the venue where it would be, but it's all online. But yeah, I mean, that was a super exciting opportunity and stuff like that makes you feel like, oh, wow, this is like a real thing. Like, I think it's sometimes because we just do it all from our, effectively from our bedroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it feels like it's not yeah. real, but being part of that and getting to meet other people who are also like really amazing, interesting mm-hmm. curators, much more established than we are. It's really exciting. And, and also from being at Berlinale Talent came one of the things which I don't know if you agree Rachel but was one of the I think coolest and most exciting things that <laughs> oh my god did, yes is a collaboration with a small festival in Athens wow. uh, who after Talents reached out and was like oh I think we should do something together and effectively we went to Athens last year the two of us and did our first in-person screening in two years or maybe even two and a half yeah Yeah. and um so they also work with kind of young programmers as well so they invited us to give a master class and then to do another presentation and a screening and that was really really great it's great great that there's that there's that sort of hunger for it and people are really interested and they they are seeking it out now whereas maybe they weren't before and I was actually thinking about uh part of can when I've been last year and the year before that they've got a section called can classics I think and they show lots of old films so I feel like be like the perfect place for an invisible woman event or screening or q and I mean if can wants to call yeah. we're not going to turn down the call <laughs> definitely don't turn that down you gotta go you gotta go do you do q as well alongside the screening sometimes would say with like who would you get involved because of course most of these women are probably like you know past <laughs> yes yes Just yeah yeah, yeah. Um, we've done many things that are like, like discussion type events so with experts. So like, for instance, we did a collaborative season with Fanspectives, who I mentioned before, that was all about work. So with that, it was films about work and labour. But the discussion element was we were talking to like union representatives and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which I think is like quite an interesting way of adding a political dimension to. That's a very obvious political element. But I think like contextualising the films in their history yeah. and stuff can be really useful. Yeah. I've also done events where it's just us talking, basically discussing with the audience and that is again quite interesting because I think the people once they see the work are like wowed by it so they just want mm-hmm. to talk about feel about it and yeah mm-hmm. interesting well you both seem to really know your your stuff definitely and you've probably discovered so many gems as well like looking into the archives you probably know like so much and I, I've got your newsletter as well that comes into my book and I always like look through and I've got to look through the blog posts as well because I feel like I could learn a lot about certain certain filmmakers and most I'm, I'm looking at current female filmmakers and well not just filmmakers you know in every role basically but it's great to look in the past as well and I hope everything goes well going forward in the future for Invisible Woman and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next thank you it's so thank nice you. to speak to you it was lovely yeah. to speak to you both as well thank you very thank much you for having us. thank you for tuning in to today's episode if you want to get involved with Invisible Woman then head to their website or to their Instagram page which I have linked in the description of this podcast episode and of course don't forget to sign up to their newsletter as well In other personal news, my internship at the European Parliament finished last week, so I look forward to putting more time back into the Real Girls Club. Of course, I'll be looking for a job, so 
this will be taking priority, but I do hope to put more time into this podcast. Please remember to review this episode and share it with anyone you think that might appreciate it. See you in the next one.